This is the Bible Book Club. And we're in the book of Joshua. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. Well, in chapters one and two of Joshua, we discussed two really interesting people, Joshua and Rahab. Joshua is preparing for battle. We begin to see why God chose him. He was a man of action and he commands authority. Now, Rahab, a really special part in the whole story in the Bible, she's a prostitute, but she's also a believer because she's had a lot of time to spend with all of those Israelites who were coming through her bar. And her she, bar is gone from a, it's a bar now. I love a, it. She's a bartender. <laughs> she's gone from a prostitute to a bartender. She's running a brothel, okay? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but she takes a, a chance because God gives her an opening and she takes it. She actually on that belief that she has. And she was also a Canaanite woman. She defied the odds. She was a survivor. And we are going to learn a whole lot more about Miss Rahab two episodes from now. Yes. Today, we're going to start in chapter three. And we're, I want to talk a little bit about the historical magnitude of this Jordan crossing we're about to read about. It's impossible to grasp how important this was to the people of Israel. Now, the Red Sea and the Jordan crossing are often compared and they form bookends around the long journey from Egypt to Canaan. The Israelites are standing on the very edge of the promise that was given to them hundreds of years before when it was given to Abraham. How will they accomplish the conquest of the land ahead of them? And how much more would they have to endure because they have already endured a lot? Consider how much freedom had already cost them. When they started out, it was supposed to be a two-week flight from Egypt that turned into a 40-year multi-generational saga wilderness trek. A trek that literally, think about it, was filled with mourning as every adult male who escaped from Egypt was buried on the way to the promised land. How tragic is that? In Numbers 145, it says that there were 603,550 men aged 20 and older who were able to serve in the military among the Israelites. Now, this number does not include women, children, and the elderly. Then in Numbers 1429, because of the Israelites' lack of faith, God declares that the entire generation of Israelites who left Egypt, apart from Joshua and Caleb, would not enter the promised land, but would die in the wilderness. That means over 600,000 men died in that 40-year trek. That's almost 300 men a week. And this number does not include the elderly men, not in the army, the women or children who may have died along the way. So that trek in the wilderness, it was sad. It was brutal. People that they love were dying all the time. Israel 1.0 is no more, except for Caleb and Joshua, the entire generation has died. Israel 2.0 will have a different story, but will it be a promising one? Well, yeah, because one of my favorite things about this book, the book of Joshua, is how many times it says every single promise that God made to the Israelites, he fulfilled in this book. To be sure, it is looking better. The contrast between the Israelites of 1.0 to the 2.0 version is great. They have transformed from fugitive slaves to an organized army. They've transformed from spiritually lawless to fully loaded with the commandments, 
the book of the law, the tabernacle, and they are armed with the Ark of the Covenant. They have gone from being pursued by the enemy, Egypt, to pursuing the enemy in Canaan. And not maybe an improvement, but a difference is that they have gone from Moses to Joshua through the Red Sea to freedom versus through the Jordan River to the promise. All right, let's begin with the first instructions for the people about the conquering. Chapter three, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. So if this is the first book that you've been with us in Bible Book Club, um, you won't know, but let me just reaffirm. The ark was where the tablets of the law were kept. It was also very holy because it represented the presence of God. It was kind of thought of as, you know, the footstool of the Lord. And so it's where he kind of resided between the cherubim. The people must consecrate themselves because the ark would move among them. Now, consecration means to clean or purify themselves. You can see Leviticus season two for the fascinating details on all that that entailed. In short, they must be ritually clean, which is achieved through bathing, clean clothing, and abstaining from sex. Now, when the ark moves, it says that amazing things will happen. The implication for amazing things is the holy presence of God himself will be among them doing things only God can do. That's why they have to consecrate themselves because they're going to be standing in the midst of God. Okay, next. Newsflash for the nation. Verse six, Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today, I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Newsflash for 2.0. They had to have been so excited. The people have finally received the instructions for their first steps into the promised land. And is it? Could it be a water parting like the one they never got to see in the Red Sea? They're probably so excited. All their lives they had heard about the Red Sea, but all but a few were actually there. Can you imagine the breaking headlines racing through the camp of two million? Experience the water wall, the Red Sea reenactment, 
H2O gives way for Israel 2.0. And God does not disappoint. It is going to be an amazing thing, a miracle. All right, the Jordan River, let's talk about it. It originates in the northernmost point of Israel in Mount Hermon near Lebanon. It travels south and into Lake Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Then it continues all the way straight down and ends in the Dead Sea. So it runs from north to south. The Israelites are crossing slightly north of the Dead Sea near Jericho. Most of the year, it would have been about 60 to 90 feet wide, which isn't that wide. However, the crossing, when they did it, was at flood stage, making it much wider, and the river would have been rushing fast. Verse 14, so when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage, all during harvest. Yet, as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Let's put ourselves in the Israelites' shoes for a minute. Imagine that you are on the brink of leaving this world. The Israelites look to the river for their entrance to the promised land. We look to the cross for our entrance to our promised land. Now, when you look at the cross, you see our promise from God, the promise of eternal life through the cross, the promise of heaven. It is precious, but it is frightening because we have to face death to get there. And what that will be like is unknown and unclear. Think about Israel. When Israel looked across the Jordan, they saw their promise from God, the promise of freedom through the river Jordan, the promised land. It was precious, but it was frightening because they must face death to get there. And exactly what it will be like when they get there is unknown and unclear. Crossing the river was a huge step of faith, not just because they had to trust the water would hold, but because they had to trust the promise that what God had in store for them on the other side was something better. They had to fight for it. Do you believe the same for yourself? Chapter four, remember. This is the story of the 12 memorial stones to help Israel remember. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? 
tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at a spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. The memorial stones for the 12 tribes were assigned to help future generations remember. And remembering what God has done was a huge theme in season five of Deuteronomy. Moses used many of his last words in Deuteronomy to remind the Israelites what God had done for them. Why? Because remembering what God has done builds our faith for what God can do in the future. And the more we trust him, the more he can use us to accomplish his purposes. So note to us, what has God done for you? Do you have a memorials of the miracles to help you remember? And what has he done in the Bible? It may not be that he did it for you or what has he done in other people around you that you've actually witnessed? That if you need faith. a miracle, just look to the miracles that you've actually experienced and seen around you because he'll do it for you too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I also think there's a good trivia question in there because the trivia question is how many times did the Israelites walk across on dry ground? A body of water. If I was asked that question, I probably would have said one. I don't, you know, you don't, you think about it being the time that Moses parted the Red Sea, but there were others. Oh no, yeah. Elijah and Elisha. Yeah. For sure. Crossed. So what's the answer? How many times? I think I have that in here. Do you? Oh, we may get to that. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. I think I talked about that. If I didn't, oops, they did. (laughs) All right. Continuing on in verse 10. Now, the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, ready for battle in front of the Israelites, as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him all the days of his life, just as they had stood in awe of Moses. So Joshua was exalted. Now, this one little sentence kind of made me feel bad for Moses, for I feel like he had to really fight to earn and keep the Israelites' respect, whereas Moses just gets exalted one time, and it's like they love him. Joshua. Joshua, sorry. Um, But then Moses was the trainer for the nation, and clearly he had trained them well. The faith of the Israelites 2.0 was greater than their predecessors. The Red Sea was not enough for that first generation to believe and follow Moses. Well, not even the Red Sea. There was also the pharaohs and, you know, the the plagues in there, too. Whereas the Jordan River was enough for the second generation. So I, I feel like they were just more faithful. Yeah. Verse 15, when the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Law to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. 
And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. God was so good to build the Israelites' faith in a way that was so tangible for them. Just as their parents had crossed through the Red Sea, they had crossed through the Jordan. And at the exact same time of year as their parents' departure from Egypt. God wanted them to know and for the other nations to hear that he was the one true God. The psalmist of 114 described this in the odd verses, not the even verses of this psalm. The odd verses of Psalm 114. When Israel came out of Egypt, Jacob from a people of foreign tongue, the sea looked and fled, the Jordan turned back. Why was it sea that you fled? Why Jordan did you turn back? Tremble earth at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. And tremble they will in the next episode. Now, this is not the last we will hear of the Jordan River. Here it comes. The the spoiler alert. This river is going to be parted again, twice in the same chapter for two men, Elijah and then Elisha in 2 Kings 2. But more familiar to us is the work of John the Baptist at the Jordan River. He prepared the way for the Lord by baptizing people in the Jordan. One of those people was Jesus himself in Matthew 3. So the answer to the trivia question is four, the Red Sea, this time in Joshua, and then twice with Elijah and Elisha. Well, um, what now? Say that again. The number of times that the seas were parted and the Israelites walked across on dry ground. It's four. It's four. Yeah. And it wasn't really the Israelites the second time. It was literally only Elijah, who Elisha went over with him. And then only Elisha came back because Elijah went up to heaven. And so Elisha returned. All right. Matthew chapter three. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. The Jordan River is a symbol of transition or the start of something new or a new life. For the Israelites, it was a transition to the promised land. For Jesus, it was his transition into ministry. In Jesus' case, instead of the river parting, the heavens parted, which makes sense because the river parting led the Israelites to their promise of land. The heavens parting leads us to our promise of eternal life in heaven. The Jordan River is also symbolic because just as the presence of God passed through the Jordan in the Ark of the Old Covenant, the presence of God passed through the Jordan River in Jesus Christ, the New Covenant. 
One more symbolic significance, and only one because there are many, and we could spend hours discussing the significance of water and rivers in the Bible, but this will be my last point. The Jordan River crossing is symbolic of the New Testament Christian being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me explain. Rivers were sources of life. Great civilizations were built around rivers so the people could live. The Holy Spirit is spoken of as a river in John 7. John 7, verse 37. Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. When the Israelites came up out of the Jordan River, they received a new life in the promised land. When Jesus came up out of the Jordan River at his baptism, he began his ministry to bring us a new life and the gift of living water, the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized and come up out of the water, it is a symbol, a public memorial stone, if you will, that we are beginning that new life and have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, once again, Susan, you've given me a Bible bender for the day. Oh, good. By showing me the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I love that because it's another example for me that nobody other than God could have done this because nobody could have crafted this and put this together like this. And I think when God did all these symbolic things that kind of um, matched what what the Israelites would have known and memorized because they were so careful to understand the scriptures, he was hoping that they would see the parallels yeah. and believe in Jesus themselves, which some of them did. Yeah. And that's why it's important for us to start to know what they are so that we can see the parallels too and increase our faith. Exactly. I think the only thing that it can be compared to in modern time is a Taylor Swift song because <laughs> she is so masterful at how she writes those songs, but she comes nowhere close to being God in writing scriptures. But yeah. the songs are really, really amazing. You can tell Heather went with her daughter to the Taylor Swift concert. <laughs> I thought she, she's comparing she, everything to Taylor Swift these days. She just released a new song that if you play in tandem at the same time as one of her old songs, it completes a story. Like, oh, that's, that's brilliant. crazy. Yeah, it is brilliant. She is pretty good. Anyway, back to the scriptures. <laughs> I want to recognize that for most of the Israelites, crossing the Red Sea or Jordan River was scary because guess what? Most people people couldn't swim. And even if they could, to make make it across an entire sea or rushing river would have been risky. But they stepped out in faith, just as Peter did in the book of Matthew. He saw Jesus walking on water and he believed he could do it too, until he became afraid and faltered. Well, he looked away from Jesus. mm -hmm. But even then, Jesus saved him. All God requires is for us to step out in faith. It doesn't mean we won't be afraid, and it doesn't mean we won't fail. He knows we will falter. That is why he sent his son to do what we could not. All right, with the crossing complete, the news spreads. The Israelites are coming. Chapter five. Now, when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Melting in fear is exactly what Rahab had said in chapter two. Was there more to crossing a river than we know? 
melting with fear fact. Here you go. I thought this was fascinating. There was this thing called trial by drowning back then, also known as the river ordeal. It was an ancient method of trial or judgment. Examples of it can be found in ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, and other civilizations in the region, and it is documented in the Code of Hammurabi. Now, the river ordeal practice was based on the belief that the gods would intervene to determine the guilt or innocence of the accused. Now, listen, because this is why they were melting with fear, because they crossed the Israelites across through this river. In the trial, the accused person would be literally tied up and thrown into the river. So this is these are people accused of crimes that they don't really know if they did it or not. So they go to the river for the answer from the gods. If the accused person drowned, they took that that the gods found them guilty and had not provided protection leading to their death. On the other hand, if the person floated or survived, it was seen as a sign of innocence. So when the entire Israel nation walked through the flooded, swollen, racing Jordan River, the Canaanites melted with fear, thinking that this was a divine sign from the gods that the Israelites were protected or innocent in their campaign against Canaan, which, of course, made what they had heard about the Red Sea crossing much more real to them, figuratively melting their hearts. Note, what I think is cool is that God purposefully exposes the weird mystic beliefs of unbelievers to show them the truth. In the case of Rahab, it was very redeeming. Okay, Israel prepares for battle with circumcision and the Passover. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibbeth Haroth. Now, this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. The Hebrew word for roll sounds like Gilgal. God is stating that with the circumcision, he is rolling away the pitiful life they have lived from Egypt until now. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham. It identified them as belonging to God, and therefore they were heirs to the promises made to Abraham. The first circumcision occurred in Genesis 17. Genesis 17, continuing from verse 3, God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. 
I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. So this is one of those full circle moments for them. They are circumcising um, and fulfilling that Abrahamic covenant that they are back in the land of Canaan and God is giving it to them because they are the descendants of Abraham. And so they faithfully execute the sign of the covenant. And this is what I love about Joshua. He's so methodical. He just ticks it off one by one. You know, he was told to meditate on the word day and night. And he obviously did because he doesn't miss a beat. He executes everything to perfection. And then they faithfully remember what God did for them through Moses, the Passover. Back to Joshua chapter 5, verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. The Israelites celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of the first month in perfect conformity to the law. A celebration commanded to help them remember the night of the 10th plague when death struck every firstborn in Egypt, but spared every firstborn in Israel. It is exactly 40 years after the first Passover and their redemption from slavery. And then no more manna. It finally stopped. They ate real food and they have finally arrived. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.